When I graduated from college, I went straight uh, to Germany. I, I was a singer back in that time, so I was going to be traveling doing concerts and meetings. But you know, anytime you move uh, from one place to another, the hard, one of the hardest things is finding a place to live. And don't you think it's especially hard when you go to a completely different country? And I think it's made even harder when you go to that country and you have no money. So I mean, how are you going to do this? So when I went to Germany, I lived in Hamburg, beautiful part of North, North Germany, and uh, found this, I don't think I chose well, but I found this uh, little rental room in a suburban area called Hamburg-Harburg, just outside of, uh, of the city of, of, of Hamburg. Now, I was living with an older couple, and this older couple had a lot of animals in the house, especially cats, and I think the cats had taken over. Because I could remember when I would open the door to that house, I knew there were cats in that house. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And my room was sort of way back up in a sort of a dark and dingy little area there. And also they wanted me, you know, these are older folks, and they wanted me to fit into their lifestyle. And so, you know, they only wanted me to use hot water uh, one day a week. And um, they also wanted to be, to be in every evening at 8 o'clock because they, they not only locked, but they bolted, they bolted the door shut. But what I was doing was traveling, doing concerts and meetings, so I would travel back and get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. And even though I would tell them I won't be back until 2, again and again, I'd get there and that, that door was bolted shut. And sitting out, this was before cell phones, and so I'd just be sitting out there saying, what now? What what?" What do I do now? Well, I, I felt a little bit trapped for the first several months. I thought there's no way to get out of this until unexpectedly a record album that I had done. Yes, my, they were the old 33 vinyls. Any of you remember those? Um, and, and cassette tapes. It had sold far more than I had expected. And I got this unexpected uh, royalty check from, from the record company. And I'll tell you, I took every penny of that and started looking for another place and I put it as a down payment on this very small two-room condominium in this beautiful little village outside of Hamburg called Yesterburg. Uh, well, my, the, the rest of the music team uh, helped me to move in. We, we found this used couch and I thought, well, that can double as a, a place to sit and to sleep. And, uh, you know, you had, had a table with chairs. You know how you just make do with chairs that we can put around there? And uh, I had a stereo system because I wanted to listen to music. And I had cups and, and plates and so, and so forth. And then we got moved in. It must have been about 4 or 5 o'clock, if I remember it right. And the rest of the music team went back to where they lived. And I was sitting there so happy. But if any of you ever lived in Europe, especially back in, in those days, this was in the 70s, I'll tell you, when you bought a place, there was nothing there including light fixtures. All right, so some of you are, are tracking here. <laughs> As it got to be darker, I thought I'd better go turn on the lights, and I went and flipped all the switches, and then I looked up and there were just wires in the ceiling. That's, that's all that was there. So that evening, as I was there, and there were no street lights at that time in the little village I lived in, so as it was becoming darker and darker, and I was just sitting on that couch, I knew things were not perfect. But, and now I'm going to get to the sermon. You know I'd get there someday, didn't you? This has something to do with the sermon. As I was sitting there, I'll tell you, I had such a joy inside. And I've tried to analyze why. And get us ready for the message today. And I've put it up here for you. Because I looked to the past. 
And I'll tell you this, when I was sitting there on that couch, I knew that what I had left behind was nothing I wanted to go back to. Then I looked to the future. And I knew that what I was experiencing at that moment, it was going to get better in the future. I knew that as little as I had, I could find some lights tomorrow. So I knew the future would be better. And so because of that, the present was changed. And I'll tell you, I could have this satisfaction and really even joy in the present situation because of my perspective on the past and the future. In fact, I was ecstatic. I still remember it. I was so ecstatic that I had a place of my own. And so I had this deep joy inside, in spite of the fact that I was sitting alone and in the darkness and in a place I'd never been before. Now, does that make a bit of sense to you? Have you ever been in a similar kind of a situation? Well, if so, I think, I think that you'll be able to understand this message. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it's a pretty good one because Peter, in writing 1 Peter, the text that we are looking to, is writing to a group of people who, in their present tense, were going through some really tough times. I don't think that they had expected that they were going to have tough times. They'd had something lacking in their lives, and then they had come to Jesus and had found what they were looking for. But what that happened is in their present situations, some things had become more difficult than they had been before. Uh, just like it was for me. Uh, sometimes in their, in their, in their family situation, uh, they weren't accepted. What kind of thing have they gotten into? Uh, in the business world, it seems like when we read it through in later chapters, it seems like some of the people there were thinking, what have they done uh, getting into this religious group? So they were walking through some tough times. And, and what the book of First Peter is doing is saying that this God that now that you have come into a relationship with through faith in Jesus has not forgotten you. And He has given you everything you need to help you to have joy in the midst of whatever you face in this world. And the thing that we look at today is really a focus on what God has given us that has come to us now. That when we look at that in the light of the past And knowing that what we have now is not yet complete in light of the future of what God is going to do, it changes everything in the present tense. So Christians, I'm going to be talking to us. I'm going to be talking to us who claim to be followers of Jesus and to the whole worldview that we have in the light of the coming of Christ. And if any of you just sort of come to church sort of saying, uh, I'm interested in this, at least this today, you'll find out that the the perspective that followers of Jesus at least should have on present trials. Ready to look at it? I'm going to follow the very same outline I just gave to you. I want us to think about the past. Uh, I want us to look at where we were before we came to Jesus. And if that was a long, long time ago that you came to Jesus, I want you to think about what life would be like now if you did not have Jesus. And when we think about the past, I'll tell you, this is the perspective we should have. That what you and I left behind is nothing that we should ever want to return to. Now, First um, Peter, we're just in the first chapter still. Looks like we could be there years, doesn't it? But verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, that's all one big long sentence. So I'm going to go back and capture a few of the phrases. Look at verse 3. We give praise to God, the one who has given us new birth into a living hope. And then in verse 4, he's given us a new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That through faith in this faith in Jesus, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. 
Now, there are just two things I want you to notice in those phrases. Number one is that before we came to Jesus, the only thing that we could really know and live for would be things that don't last. We didn't have a living and lasting hope. We weren't alive to eternal and lasting things. We didn't know of an inheritance that that nothing in this world could take away. That was our past. And the other issue is this matter of salvation. That there was something in our past that you and I needed to be rescued from. There was a way of life that just needed to be changed. And as hard as we'd work at it, we couldn't get there. Those are are the two things I want you to look at very carefully. The, The first that we didn't have a living hope. The the Bible never wants us to forget that before we were, and using the language here, born again, made alive to eternal things, you and I really were only alive to, I mean, really knew things in this material world, things that that are temporary, uh, things that don't last. We are built, the Bible tells us, with eternity in our hearts. We've been made to have something eternal inside of us, uh, what, what Peter calls a living hope, but we didn't know it. So we have this sense that there's more, but we haven't, we haven't found it. And so we, before coming to Christ, it's the way we were and the whole world is. And it's not all that we were made for, so we're always having this longing. And in fact, as we go after it, we often do wrong and need a rescue from our former way of life. That's what Peter is getting at. The Apostle Paul, if, if any of you were here during my uh, Ephesians messages... He talked about this, I think, even more clearly. So I just want to show you Ephesians chapter 2 and the way he put it in the light of of this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, Now look, uh, Paul would say, Now look to your past, look to our past. You were dead. Well, not not physically, right? But but dead to God. We didn't know eternal living things. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you, when you followed the ways of this world. That's what we knew. All of us also lived among them at one time. All that we could do is gratify the cravings of our flesh and follow its desires and its thoughts. Because that's what we were alive to. So we, we shouldn't be critical of the rest of the world because like the rest of the world, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. But because of His great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. You see, sometimes I I think it's hard for us. We have to come back and have a service like this where we remember the way things were. Because we're still material beings, aren't we? And so sometimes we still think, whenever the trials come, if only this temporary thing could be gained, life would be great. Or even if this temporary pain could be taken away, then immediately, that, that's really my hope. That's, that's really what I am after. But we know deep inside that's not true. We know we already have something that cannot be taken away. So that whether we have those things or not, there can still be this deep inner joy. Deep inside, we know that even if that trial were taken away for a little while, that if that's all that happened... That there has to be more to live for. Deep down inside, we know that if we got whatever it is that we think would bring us joy, that the whole world is after. What, what am I talking about? Uh, a promotion? Uh, winning a golf or tennis tournament? I'm just trying to come up with anything here. Uh, finishing school and getting that degree in hand? 
Uh, getting a break from the way of life I have now, getting to go to Hawaii for two weeks, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Anything that we think, if only I had that, then I would find real life. We know deep down inside that that is not the thing that brings a living hope, but that we have to be made alive to something else. But even those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long, long time, sometimes we're tugged way back again into thinking uh, that really what life is about is those temporary things. What do I mean? I mean, I could just hear it sometimes in the way that we pray. Have you ever noticed that sometimes even in sharing about our prayer lives, we'll tell people, I I had an answer to prayer. And the only answer to prayer that we think is really a, a worthwhile answer to prayer is if we've gotten some material thing that we wanted. A healing from this, a a restoration of that, a promotion to this. That's the only answer to prayer. We we keep reading the Bible, these parts of, what what is this thing that James says? No, no, you've got to let the trial have its perfecting work. That's a part of the answer to prayer. God's going to do something even, we don't want to read that part. Even in the way we define blessing. um, Oh, I received a blessing. And the only blessing would be, I, I thought back to my time in Yesterburg. Getting that royalty check. That's the only real blessing. <laughs> not, not seeing that maybe the other part, if I hadn't experienced the other part, I wouldn't even enjoy the blessing. That sometimes the blessing is knowing God's presence in the midst of, uh, of the challenge. We get back into the old way. We have found a living hope. And sometimes we have to take time to remember, if we can possibly remember, that living that way and, and thinking that if only I had this, if only I did that then life would be good and then we got that and it didn't work I don't want to go back to that way of life do you that way of life destroys even our relationships because we then we have to try to put a person into the place of God how many times people think if only I could find a spouse then life would be good or or even if, if my spouse were better then and so we put our spouses into the place of God and they can't be that We'll always let one another down. We know this. Don't, I don't want to go back to that way of life, do you? What happens then is, when those material things come to us, you and I can really enjoy them because they're not the center of our beings. Uh, Paul would put it, uh, I've learned how to really have great joy when those things come or when they don't because the living hope can never be taken away. And the other part of our past that we've also got to look at is not just that we were living for things that don't last. But as we were trying to find meaning, we got ourselves into patterns that were wrong and trapped us. Uh, Paul would put it, we engaged in transgressions and sins. And I'll tell you, all of us know that there are things in our histories that need to be forgiven, right? And so in longing for that, there was a way of life in which we either tried to cover that up or tried to, in our own strength, make things different. I'll tell you, that wasn't a good way of living either, was it? And now we have found Christ (laughs) where where God says, I've known your past, present, and future, and I have cast the sin as far as east is from the west, and I'll give myself to you to remake you, and I'll tell you, we don't have to live the way we used to. Do you want to go back to that way of life where you have to come in and pretend that you're more than you are or that somehow you can get something that you know you failed getting as hard as you've tried to get it? That's a long sentence right there. I don't want to go back to that. Um... Christians who have understood this throughout history have said sometimes 
even we who know Christ have this tendency to want to go back to Egypt. You know what they were talking about? They are talking about that story in the Old Testament where the people of Israel had been in slavery and they cried out to God, We've got it. this is an awful way of life, get us out of this, this doesn't work. And then God got them out through this marvelous miracle and sent them toward a promised land. But on, in between there was a wilderness. And as they were going around through that wilderness, sometimes they'd look back and say, Hmm, this is hard. Maybe we should go back there. What they needed to remember was that back there they were shackled. Back there they were in slavery. Back there they were mistreated. Back there their children had no hope of a better future. They needed to remember the past and remember that there was nothing there worth going back to. My brothers and sisters, in the midst of our difficult times, sometimes we need to remember that too. That takes me to that second part, the future. Sitting there on that dark couch, I knew that the future was going to be better than the present. (laughs) And I'm telling you right now too, that Christians, we know that what lies ahead is worth waiting for. Look at the way Peter puts it. I'll show you a couple of verses. Look at them carefully. Verses 5 and 6. True faith, in the midst of everything that will attack this living hope, you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, then, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then in verses 8 and 9, uh, in spite of the fact that you don't see him and you don't see him now, you believe in Jesus. So that means you are filled now with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. All right. I need to stop for a moment and talk with any of you who have a church background like mine. I grew up in a Baptist church in West Virginia, and some of you have grown up in similar kinds of backgrounds, and, or some of you have grown up in holiness settings or almost any evangelical setting. And when, when your pastor reads this text to you, this, this, if you listen carefully, it hits you as strange. Because we talk about salvation in backgrounds like I've grown up in as always being in the past tense. I was saved, we say, when I went forward at a camp when I was nine years old. Isn't that we we talk about it? It's something that happened. I was saved. And we ask, have you been saved? And yet here we, we look in First Peter and he's talking about salvation being something future. That salvation is, is something that is coming. Uh, it is the goal of our faith. Uh, the salvation of our souls. And I'll t- I talked about this with the ministry council. I think it was my first month here. We had a retreat and I was talking about this future tense of salvation. And I could already tell that some of the ministry council thought, what kind of a pastor have we called here? We, we are being saved. Um, I-, I want you to know, before you brand me as a heretic too quickly, that what we're looking at, if you can put it back up, Zach, just so that they can see it and I can get out of my... We're talking about the Bible saying this. You, you see that? And so your, your battle is with the Bible, not with your pastor. I feel good. I feel good about this. All right. So let me try to explain it. In the Bible, salvation begins when we trust Jesus. When we trust Jesus, God first turns to us and he declares us right with him. It's called being justified. We are, we are made right with God. 
And God gives himself to us. He forgives us of our sins and he gives his spirit to us and begins a work in us that he promises he's not going to stop until his work in us is complete. And when he's done, we're going to look like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 will be conformed to the image of Christ. But he promises that those that he has justified, that he has said, you're right when we trust him, will be glorified, will, will be made to be like Jesus. But it's not done yet. This saving work of God isn't complete. I'm just looking around, just looking at who's here. There's a lot of work to be done. Just look at you. Look at your pastor. There's a lot of work to be done. That the beauty is that God promises that He will shield us by His power until He's done with the work. And so when we look into the future, as hard as it is, as many times as we fail now, God promises, I'm going to make it different in the future. Uh, There's going to be a a day that you're not going to fail. There's going to be a day when you're not going to be disappointed with yourself or with anything. There's going to be a day when there's no more pain and sorrow and even any more death. Something better is ahead. And I'll tell you, if you look at verse 7, even the difficulties we go through now are not outside of the control of God. And God does a lot of that perfecting work in us, even by allowing us to go through some tough times now. Because what they often do when we go through tough times, they wean us of dependency upon material things. And they force us to decide whether we truly trust God. Every strong Christian I have ever met looks back and sees the greatest times of his or her experience with God is when they have trusted God in the midst of a trial and found Him to be there and to be faithful. Well, can anybody nod? Isn't that true? I was talking about this on Tuesday. You know, I have this preaching group of people. And Pastor Albert, I think because he knew I, I've spent so many years in Chicago, reminded me of the uh, Chicago Bulls championships back in the, you know, the 90s. I was a big Bulls fan. And apparently Albert had been watching some of these documentaries about the Bulls championships. And he was pointing out that when you talk with the players you know, after the championship's over, they, they almost never talk about the ring or about the trophy. Uh, that, that, that was what they were going for. But the, the documentaries are all about the struggle. Uh, there was this time when three of the starters were injured and everybody had to come in. Uh, the, Michael Jordan, there was the time when he had serious flu, 103 or 104 degree temperature, scored 43 points in the second half. There was, there was this game when the, in the fourth quarter they were 20 points behind and the subs were in the game and half the United Center had gone home and they won anyway. <laughs> You know, all of these struggles were the things that, you know, that, that, that they rejoiced in. And at the end, they could look back and just, just remember those times. Well, I just want you to know that God is saying, listen, ahead of you is a championship ring. Ahead of you is a trophy, and it is, it is great. That trophy that we have to look forward to is, is that we have a time in which we'll, we'll live lives without failure and sin. Uh, times in which our lives are centered on eternal things because no longer will we simply know God by faith. We'll, we'll see Him as He is, face to face. Hallelujah. Lives in a world without pain and without death. I, I love how the Apostle Paul shouts this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, listen, quoting the Old Testament, he says, No eye in this world has ever seen, 
and no ear has heard and no mind has even conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. But the Spirit of God reveals it to us. You see, different from the bowls, uh, let, let me make this a Los Angeles. Now, now that I'm here in the L.A. area, uh, I better turn into a Lakers talker. The Lakers right now are still in the middle of a, a championship charge. And they don't know the outcome. We're in the middle of this victory charge. And we know the outcome. God turns to us in the midst of the trials and says, God is at work even in those. And the future is going to be better than the past. So have a joy in the midst of the trial. Is that clear? So we look to the past and we see what, what's back there isn't worth waiting for. And then we look to the future and say what's ahead really is worth uh, waiting for. And so what does that do about our present? And here's what the Bible says. Christians, when, when we've experienced that living hope and when we have this perspective on the world, what we experience now, even while you and I are still imperfect, and even while the world is imperfect, what we experience now is joy in the midst of the tough times. May I show it to you again, verse 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, Peter says, for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And then in verse 8. Even though you do not see Jesus, you now love him. And even though you do not see him right now, you believe in him. And when you do, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now when I read verses 8 through 12, what I envision, I, I think I envision this right, what I envision Peter doing is hearing people like his readers and really like us, saying all of this talk about the past and the present, that's all just fine and good. But the trials that I'm going through are hard and I'm still a person doing a lot of failing. So, and I, I can't see, I can't see Jesus. I can't see God right now. And Peter, you've got a chance to see him, but I, I don't have that opportunity. And so, so how do I know it's real? And how do I know it's come to me? That, that I'm really a person who has this living hope and that God will prove himself. All I have to, to hold on to is whether God will be good to his word or not. And I see Peter taking that up and, and walking them through it. He begins in verse 10 to make a beautiful point. I'll just summarize it. You can read it through and I'll summarize it. He says, first of all, I want to tell you this salvation that is going to happen, that, it, that comes to you in Jesus, this is what all of the great Old Testament people knew God was going to do. The Old Testament people looked at this world and saw all of its pain and they knew that God was and that God loved the world and that God was going to send a Messiah who would come and make things different. They, they knew it, but, and they were, they were given from God insight, prophecies into, into how God would do this and through whom he would do it, but they couldn't see it clearly. So they looked, you can read, they looked so intently. These prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they'd look intently trying to figure out how is he going to do it? What will be the circumstances? When will be the time? Through whom will it happen? But they never experienced it. They knew it was going to happen. 
But they began to eventually grasp the fact that what they saw and what they talked about was going to be applied to somebody else. And what Peter says is, it's come to us. What they knew had to happen, we know because we know that Jesus has come into this world. And, and when we trust Jesus, we know how, how God forgives sins. When we trust Jesus and we're brought in, into an experience with God and have the Holy Spirit inside and have the family of God with us and we worship like this, we experience what they were looking for. So even if you have to go through temporary trials, all that these great people were looking for has come to you in Jesus. And in fact, if you look at verse 12, he says, and even angels, these powerful spiritual beings who bring messages from God, all they can do is long to get a glimpse into what God is doing. I don't know if you see what he's saying. Angels, different from us, are not made in the image of God. Um, Jesus did not become one of them. Uh, the angels who are faithful to God did not experience the redemption of God, the forgiveness of sins that they didn't deserve. And, but we do. And so these majestic angels looking at how a holy God looks down and sees unholy people uh, and says, what is He doing? Rescuing and loving and, and forgiving those kinds of people that show up at Lake Avenue Church. What kind of God is this who would love in that way? It's come to us. We experience it. And when we think about what we've experienced, if you're saying, well, what, Pastor, what is it that we're supposed to experience? There is what I call a great boil-down phrase in verse 10. I wrote about this in the worship folder if you've read it. I like boil-down phrases. It's a cooking image. It's when you're cooking something and you have too much liquid. So you let it simmer and boil until the liquid goes away and you really have what you want to have left there. The essentials are there. It, it, I, I compared it. Did, did you read it to uh, when I was in school and I'd take a class that was ridiculously hard and in a field that I'd never studied before, I didn't even understand the language. I remember philosophy, my first metaphysics class. I would just sit there baffled. What on earth is this talking about? Or, or students keep telling me about organic chemistry. Who can figure out what's going on in there? It's when you get into a subject matter that just seems to be too big and then at the end of the class, the prof stops. And for those of you who are faculty members, I'll look down, John, listen to this. They can look out and say, I know this is hard for you, but boiling it all down, and students, what do we do when, it, when a prof says that? We whip out those computers, we take out those pens, and we're going to write that thing down, aren't we? Because we know now, as hard as this is, we're going to get the essence of the matter. I'll tell you, when it comes to the person of God, the, the most complex the vastest subject matter in all of the cosmos. God and His ways. When God says, boiling it all down, we want to listen. And there are times in the Bible where, where those of us who have studied our whole lives and had the privilege of going to grad school and still feel like we've just started to learn about God, that's how I feel. I just feel like I've just started. We look for these texts where it just boils it all down. And in verse 10, you see it. Concerning the salvation that the prophets all looked at, and that the angels long looked into who spoke of, and here it is, the grace that comes to you. There is the phrase, God's grace has come to you. So, grace, something we haven't earned, we certainly don't deserve, 
Salvation is summarized as God giving us something, then it comes to us. Now, I've been chewing on this all week and talking with people about this all week. This is what has happened. When you become a Christian in the midst of everything, it is God's grace that has come to you. So that if you're asking, am I really a Christian? Do I really have this new birth into a living hope? I think this phrase can help us. So I've boiled down my thinking (laughs) into three tests that I want to give to you. And for all of us, even longtime churchgoers, I want you to listen to these because I think they're good indicators about whether we have this living hope. First test. When I'm a Christian, I know that it is God who has come to me, not I who have gone to him. I've had to recognize that the only hope I have is that God had to come to me. You and I have had to own that if it were left up to us, we would walk away from God. That's what people have always done. We've wanted to live our own ways. But God loves us so much that that He sees us and He keeps coming after us. And it's often just when we sort of give up that we turn back and find out that He is there. He has come after us. That in the Bible, the initiative for salvation is always God's. It's while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is not that first we loved God and then, well, okay, they loved me, now I'll love them. No, first God loved us. It is always God seeing us and loving us and seeking after us. Genesis chapter 3, people hiding from Him. God saying, where are you? It's always God coming after us. It is Him wanting us in the family, and this shows us the difference between Christianity and other religions. I'll tell you, other religions always have a set of teaching that once you can grasp it, you get into a point of meditation or grasping that you come toward the deity, or it might be a set of rules that once you start living this way a little more closely, uh, then you get close enough to God that you start getting to know God. But though Christianity has teaching thankful, and though it tells us how God made us to live, first and foremost, Christianity is about an event that happened in this world. It is good news, and that event is that God has gone seeking after us. That we had walked away and God came. God in the person of Jesus Christ uh, came, uh, lived, the only one who lived life as it was made to be lived, then died in the place of those of us who haven't, rose again, defeated sin and death, and comes after us and saying, if you will but trust me, you can have a, a new birth into a living hope. Now, making it more clearly, to be a Christian is not that I pull out the Ten Commandments or I move over and take the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, if I can start doing all of that a little better, then maybe God will, I'll, I'll get to know Him. No, no, no. The harder we try to work at doing what those things tell us to do, the more we see that we fall short. We have to come to the point of owning, I can't get there. And find out that God is there waiting for us, ready to come back to Him. And when we get that, then we recognize that the controlling factor in our walk with God, in fact, in everything in this world, is God Himself. Uh, Once again... Christians, even those of us who are Christians for a long time, sometimes we still want to think it's dependent upon me. 
So we get into a tough time and we think, well, if I show up at church five or six times in a row and maybe this week I'll go both to 9 and 11, then maybe God will care enough about me that he'll change the situation. God cares about you. He's there in the, in the midst of that trial. And even in the trial is something that he will use. It's about him. Do you see it? I know that grace has come to me. I didn't go to him. Uh, sometimes when we have trouble, we think, I know why I sinned again. I got myself into this mess. I, if I can live a, a week well enough, maybe I can pray again. I'm not going to pray until I get my life good enough to... If we do that, we'll never pray because prayer isn't about us. You see, in prayer, the controlling factor is God. So that when we've gotten ourselves into a mess because we have sinned, God is still after us. And prayer is just turning back to Him and finding Him say, I will cast that thing as far as east is from the west. The first thing that I see that Peter is saying to us is that when we're a Christian, we grasp that. This, this is so remarkably freeing, isn't it? So remarkably freeing. That it is God who has come after us, not we who have sought after Him. A second test. When I'm a Christian, I know that God has come in and is specifically underlined to me. Uh, in verse 10, there is a strong preposition. Grace has come ace into into you. I know it sounds a little bit like one of those weird sci-fi uh, movies, but it really means that when we become a Christian, we've been invaded by an outside power. <laughs> it's not like a sci-fi movie. It's that we've invited God into our lives. We've said, I can't do it. Come in. But the God who comes in is the God of Genesis 1. And the God of Genesis 1, do you remember? He spoke and everything came into being. So I'm telling you, when He comes into us, you know who takes over, don't you? And this is the thing that keeps so many people from Christianity. It is not that the people of our world are irreligious. I'll tell you, human beings, we are incorrigibly religious. I honestly think that in the 21st century, we are more religious than we have ever been, and this is all around the world. Uh, it's, it's already been learned. Uh, totalitarian communist atheism could not wipe out religiosity from its people after decades of trying to do so. The moment the yoke of government was off, they became more religious than ever before. And in our own country, secularism has not been able to wipe out religion simply by mocking it. Because deep inside, folks, we have been made with eternity in our hearts and we just know there has to be more to this world than material things. There can be a few people who try to pretend there might be uh, only a material world, but almost all people are religious in some way. But simply because people sense inside that there is a God, Romans chapter 3, it doesn't mean we seek after God. We, no one seeks after this God. And you know why? Because this is the God of Genesis 1. And uh, if we fill that inner void with the God who is God, it means he takes over and we don't want to be taken over. We do not want to be controlled. And yet a Christian is one 
who has recognized that when I control my own life, it doesn't work. And we have come and seen that God loves me and we have to trust him. It's like, like Lucy in, in the Narnia Chronicles. If I let him in, is he tame, the lion? <laughs> of course not, he's a lion. <laughs> That's what the Bible says, of course not, he's God, but he's good. And so to be a Christian is to say what Paul said. Now that I've come to know Jesus and he has come into my life, I can no longer live for myself, but I must live for him who died and rose again. So the second thing is that you look and say, I've given my will to him. That to be a Christian is one who has invited God to come in to us. And then finally, last, uh, when I'm a Christian... I have received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That the way we receive this unearned gift is through faith in Jesus Christ, no other way. This is the heart of the Bible's message that God came in the person of Jesus Christ, that only one person came who lived this sinless life and then was willing to take our place as sinful people on that cross. And that in Him what He offers is something that you and I could never earn. And the word is grace. Grace has come to you. But how do we usually define grace? Even the way I talked about it a few moments ago. Um, Unearned favor. An unmerited gift. But really that's an inadequate definition, isn't it? Because it might make us think that God's grace is just that he's given me something that I I haven't been able to work for. Uh, It would mean that if there's a person who's lost his or her job, that you give them something that they haven't been able to earn themselves. But grace in the Bible is that God gives us something even though we deserve the opposite. Again, sometimes I I think we, we in the midst of trials, just say, oh, I'm going to go to church a lot and then I hope God will give me what I deserve. Well, what I deserve is just what I don't want God to give me. What I deserve is condemnation and death. And yet God loves me and he's found a way to deal with the punishment that my sin requires but to declare me right with him and it is only in the person of Jesus it's only in the I've tried to think how do I explain this how do I explain this our time is gone but you've got to listen to this for a moment I started thinking about the musical uh, Les Miserables and then I had to go back to Victor Hugo's book uh, Les Miserables and that if you haven't read the book if you haven't seen the musical Uh, most of it here in Southern California, almost all of you have. So um, what happens is that Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread in this poverty and is slapped into prison. And he becomes increasingly embittered in the prison. And finally, after way too long a time, he is at last released, but he has to carry this yellow card that he's a prisoner and nobody will give him work. Nobody will take him in and just no way to live. And so finally he goes to this bishop's house. And the bishop, according to the book, the, the, the uh, movie doesn't quite get it all, doesn't have enough time, um, but the bishop could see what was in Jean Valjean's heart. He knew if he took him in and gave him any kind of freedom, that Jean Valjean would plunder him. And yet he welcomed him into his home and gave him access to his home. And Jean Valjean does exactly what the bishop knew he would do. He steals from him and takes off. Well, of course, the police catch him, and um, 
as they bring him back to the bishop. Do you remember what the bishop says? Oh, I gave those to him. And, uh, oh, you forgot the, the most valuable pieces. Here are the candlesticks, too. Now, doesn't that bother you? And when you read that, the first thing you think is, he lied. How could he be the Christ figure? And all? He lied. He hadn't given them to him, except what, the point that Hugo was trying to make is that the bishop already knew what was in his heart. So if he was going to welcome, and his housekeeper knew this too, and challenged the bishop about this, if he is going to welcome Jean Valjean into his home, it means he was opening himself up to this man who was not yet made new and redeemed. And so all that he had was being made available to him, including those candlesticks. There is such a telling sentence, because this is so humbling. When you and I grasp this, that there's nothing we can do that will make us better than others, that it's all a matter of God's grace, that God knows what is in our hearts, that he is ready to forgive us now, but he knows that in the future, because we are not yet complete, we'll continue to plunder him, yet he loves us anyway. Isn't that humbling? Well, in Victor Hugo's book, he simply puts this, after the bishop had done this, Jean Valjean could not say whether he had been touched or humiliated. All that he knew was that he owed this man his life. It's so humbling when we realize there's nothing that we can do. That we come to Christ and he takes away our sins, but we're still, this full salvation is in the future tense. God still knows that the way we are, we'll keep walking away from him and plundering him, but he loves us anyway. It's all grace. It is all grace. We don't deserve a bit of it. Christians, we know this. And Christians, because of this, we can never be proud and think we are better than others. We can never be self-righteous. And mostly our whole lives are going to be characterized by saying, Thank you, Lord. What kind of a God is this who will come? This is what angels crane their necks to look into. They look down. He's rescuing John Stuthers? You're kidding. I bring John into the sermon. That's, that's all of us. God will do that. And John and my and your, where we're Christians. We are so thankful. And we know we have something to offer the world. For God has come. The grace of God has come to you. And when we grasp that, then I'll tell you that verse, I don't know if there's a verse in the Bible that I love more than chapter 1, verse 8. Then and only then do you understand it. That in the midst of a tough time, the Word of God turns to us and says, Yes, though you have not seen this Jesus, you love Him. And though you do not see Him right now, you believe in Him. You trust Him. And whatever happens... You and I are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for we know that we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Grace has come to you. Inexpressible joy. 
Words can't capture it. I, I think that's partly why God has given us the arts. Uh, I think sometimes God has given us the gift of music and the arts so that we can mix that with words to try to express something that just your pastors talking about it can't express it. But this we know, it is glorious. It is glorious. And it all boils down to this. In Jesus Christ, grace has come to you. And all that we can say is praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I hope we might sing a song about God's grace. Is there a chance? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we gather here, I find it so hard even to express these things, but I pray, Father, that I've been faithful to your word and that you would use this message and this your word to do in our lives what you have used it to do in so many lives of those who have gone before us. Father, for those who have come here and have never experienced your grace through faith in Jesus, Father, I pray that today they may know this is true and may hear them say to you, you're right with me. I give myself to you. Father, I'm sure that there are so many of us, maybe all of us who have come this morning, who though we know this and we've already been born again into this living hope, we keep turning back to Egypt and thinking that maybe that's where we find real hope and real life. Father, we take this morning to tell you we trust you. And you are our hope. You are our salvation. And we ask you, Father, to take away the trials that we might be going through. But, Father, we trust you with them. And if they are from you, we will have a joy and a faith in the midst of them. Father, do your work in us. And give us gratitude and joy because of your grace that is so shocking, so amazing. In Jesus' name.